Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Is, is full of passion and death and bloodshed and all the things that bring you to TV. Plagues almost destroy all of Europe, in fact, in the 1200s and the 1300s, and it keeps coming back over and over again. It is a curse, and yet in many respects it's a blessing because it creates social change in a way that normally it takes a war. So many people died in the Great Plagues that suddenly you had people at the lowest level of society able for the first time to move up because the people above them in society died out. And so serfs and freemen gathered up large pieces of land from the people who died and amassed wealth. And this is the beginning of the middle class and a vast change in British society. Last week, we joined Simon de Montfort in creating the first representative parliament in England, and almost a republic. But the changes were too much for the king and many of the nobles, and a civil war broke out. The royalists won, and the revenge they took on the rebels was both bloody and violent. But in many ways, the rebels won. Henry III is no longer much of a factor in politics. His son, Prince Edward, is king in all but name. The great towns like London and Oxford were punished as severely as the rebel nobles, but they refused to give up the rights that Simon and the provisions of Oxford had granted them. And so there begins a period where the cities, the towns themselves, become a political entity arguing with the king and beginning to withhold products and from time to time taxes. Montfort and his men and his ideas won the hearts and minds of the people. And when the nobles got home they found very little to celebrate. The country is bankrupt. Everybody's been busy with the rebellion there are no crops in the fields, and the people are sullen and uncooperative. They had sponsored 
and followed Simon de Montfort. And politically, King Edward I discovered that Parliament was now a regular institution. Even his nobles thought a regular Parliament was a good idea. Of course, the royalist nobles thought it should be limited to them, not to the people. But they did like the idea of a regular Parliament. But so did Edward's government officials and clerks. So did the church. And to the nobles' dismay, Edward discovers that if he calls a full parliament, which included the small landowners of the shires and the burgesses of the town, there were enough of them to balance his nobles. And so he uses, occasionally, not often, a full parliament to rein in his own barons. So Simon de Montfort and his followers lost the war. They lost their lives. And they changed England forever. Edward I will call Parliament regularly throughout his reign, and when he needs to, a full Parliament with small landowners and tradesmen. A new family rises to power right after Evesham, a family called Lancaster. Thomas of Lancaster was Edward's cousin, and Edward gives Thomas Simon de Montfort's lands after Evesham in 1265. But there must have been something in the water or the air of the Montfort lands because Thomas later leads a baron's rebellion against Edward II and is beheaded. By Edward III's reign, Lancaster is a royal duchy and there is a house of Lancaster. Edward III comes to the throne in 1327, and the commons are a regular, established institution, only 20 years after the death of Edward I. Now, Edward III is the son of, naturally, Edward II and Isabella of France. First and foremost, he's a warrior, and he spends most of his time at war. He introduces new battle tactics in 1332 at the Battle of Halidon Hill against the Scots. For the very first time, he merges the power and agility of the English bowman, longbowman, with the dismounted man-of-arms, that is, the knights. It is the first time that is done, this is done, and it is a very powerful tactic. The English yeomen and their longbow will be the best professional soldiers of their day. They will dominate all the battlefields of the 14th and 15th century. And especially after Agincourt, they are a force for social change. So keep that thought in mind for later in the lecture. Edward III also changes England abruptly just by being born because he is the son of the sister of the French king. Now, un until Edward, all English claims to France were based on marriage or inheritance of different duchies, Aquitaine, Anjou, Normandy, Gascony. But France, the larger country, the entity, was never part of English claims. But in 1328, the French king, Charles IV, dies without any children. Edward is his sister's son. 
He has a legal claim to the throne. In fact, under the rules of primogeniture, one of the most powerful claims to the French throne. But the French don't want a king who is also king of England, and so they choose Philippe VI, a cousin of Charles's, instead. Now, at first, Edward doesn't do anything about it. But then Philippe makes a mistake. In 1337, King Philippe confiscates Aquitaine from Edward. And so Edward goes to war with him. Edward's response starts the Hundred Years' War. It's actually a 105 years' war, but you know slogans are everything, and Hundred Years' War is a little more catchy than a 105 years' war. Must have had great admin even there then. The war starts in 1337 and goes to 1453. Edward claims in 1340 to be the king of France. Now, it's only a claim. He's going to have to conquer France. But it is the very first time an English king is actually a legal contender for the French throne. By 1356, Edward III and his son, the Prince of Wales, another Edward, have Aquitaine, Calais, and a most important prisoner. They have captured the French king, John II. It's a major coup. Edward III and his successor, his grandson, Richard II, claim the title King of France, legitimately. But no English king is, is crowned King of France until Henry VI. But as much change as Edward brought to England and to Europe as a whole, something much, much, much smaller brings a much greater change. In 1348, the Black Death arrives in England on a ship docking in Dorset. The Black Plague came to Europe riding in with the Mongols in 1346 as they attacked the Black Seaports. Once you're on a ship, you can go almost anywhere. So in 1347, the Black Death reached Italy. Genoa, Florence, Venice are ghost towns. Merchants reported 100,000 people dead in Venice alone. When the Black Death arrived, England's population was 4,250,000 at least one-third of the population died. One-third. That's as if you woke up one morning and one in three of your neighbors was no longer with you. You would notice. By 1380, the population was down to 2,500,000 from the plague and from the famine that followed it. Ports and towns, of course, suffered the worst people living close together. Between 25 and 50,000 people died in London. But entire small villages also disappeared forever. Only the remote areas of the Northeast, the mountain regions of Wales and Scotland, and West Cornwall escaped. They were so remote, there was so little travel into those areas that it didn't get to them. And the plague returns periodically, 1348, 1349, 1359, 
1361 and 1375, over and over and over. And most devastating was its schedule. It was at its height, its worst, in the spring, the summer, and the fall. Prime planting and sowing seasons. It led up in the winter when you couldn't grow anything. And so the Black Death not only killed, but it starved people to death. The Black Death took so many lives because the disease had already mutated into three separate strains. The classic Black Death, with its sudden boils in the neck or in the groin area, is bubonic plague. A second version attacked the bloodstream directly. If you got either of those two, you died within five days. The third strain attacked the lungs, and you coughed your life out or sneezed your life out in handfuls of blood. You died in three days with that version. Now, how many of you have played as kids, or maybe today, Ring Around the Rosie? That, co that was created during the bubonic plague years. Ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, all fall down. Remember that? Okay. The original version was ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies, achoo, achoo, all fall down. And it describes the plague. Ring around the rosies was a ring that, that formed around the boils. Pocket full of posies, so many people are dead in the streets. The stench is overwhelming. And so if you had to go out, you put potpourri, nice smelling flowers and, and um, petals in your pockets or in some material to hold up to your nose. So pockets full of posies, you're going out among the dying. Achoo, achoo, you've got that third version. Once you are sneezing or coughing, you're dead all fall down. Kind of a macabre kids game, wouldn't you say? The social impact was enormous of one-third of your population dying. You can imagine. The population shrinks. It's smaller with each attack. And each time, less land is tilled. There are fewer people to grow the crops, to create anything, to move things. Even if enough people survived to plant and harvest the food, they don't want to take it to the plague-ridden towns. And so even the healthy are hungry. People literally avoided each other. It was safer. They didn't know what was causing it, but they knew if you were around other people, you would catch it. So weakened people had fewer resources each time. In parts of Europe, they decided that the plague came from cats. And so they killed off all the cats. Since the plague really came from fleas that lived on rats and human beings, by killing the cats, they made the plague worse because the rats could populate safer and quicker. The church took a beating, too. Many clergy, even bishops, go out into the streets and into the homes to give last rites. They go among the suffering, and they immediately catch it, too. Over one half the clergy in England died the first year of the plague. Most of the ones less, 
left were less dedicated. The ones who don't want to leave their churches, they're afraid. Many refused to give last rites at all, or would only come out if they were paid huge sums of money. And so what happened with the people? Your churchman dies, the others won't come to your aid, you don't get the rights you're, you're promised. Depression and skepticism sets in across the population. Now you can imagine what it did to the economy. Nothing's moving, nobody's working, fewer and fewer healthy people to grow the crops, make the products, move them, fewer and fewer left to work or to buy. And so the economy goes down. But someone benefits, no matter how bad a disaster can be. And the plague was a social benefit in the long run. Serfs and freemen survived, and the survivors could charge whatever they wanted to for their labor. Market value really applied. We're talking about a scarce resource. The lowest class of people now are the most valuable, because they are few. Others, serfs and, and freeholders, took over the lands and the, the livestock of the people who died. Now, there's no, there are no deeds in those days, so your neighbors all die, there are no heirs. You just take over their land, you take over their livestock. And so small farmers and, and freeholders become larger farmers and freeholders. You begin to have some consolidation of land. Bonded serfs sometimes just walked away when the lords and the reeves died. Go to towns, go to other lords, and craftsmen also walked away, the thatchers, the coopers, the blacksmiths. They now go wherever they can get paid the most, and they will go to other towns and to other lords. Now the remaining nobles and the church leaders and in a lot of shires, the church was the largest landowner and largest employer, are losing control of the market and of the labor that supports their markets. And they panic. They go to the king and they complain. Anybody's doing anything. There's anarchy out here. My bonded serfs are walking away. Now, King Edward III was preoccupied with his wars. He had left control of the government in, two of, in the hands of two of his sons, Thomas of Gloucester and John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt had most of the control. He is Duke of Lancaster. He's Edward's fourth son. Now, Gaunt's a fine administrator, respected, but never popular. This is not a warm man. He also has absolutely no sensitivity to the needs of the people or the crisis that is going on. So in 1351, the government issued a statute of laborers, a new law, which made it a crime for serfs or craftsmen to ask for more money or for employers to offer more money than the local shire justices, the local nobles, said was standard. So you couldn't hire somebody away for more money, and you couldn't ask for more money. It was against the law. Now, you may be a little horrified by that, but last month, September 2005, 
our government debated changing a law on our books. The law on our books says that an employer cannot go into a disaster area and pay less than the going rate outside the disaster area, i.e., you cannot go in from outside and charge the people who are already suffering a disaster minimum wage. You have to pay whatever is the going rate where you come from. There was a debate in Congress to change that law so that people going into a disaster area can charge less. Now, they have not yet changed that law, but it is an eerie parallel because the reason given in 1351 and in 2005 was exactly the same. To pay people more would be a disaster for the economy. I find it ironic that sufferers of disaster are not considered more important than a problem, potential problem, or blip in the economy. Several months later, Gaunt's government added to the statute any laborer who left his place of work to seek higher wages would be branded with the letter F for falsehood. You are a liar. You have not kept your bond to stay in place. The brand would essentially condemn you for life to that place and doing that job. Slavery, in other words. Serfs were also denied the right to buy their way free. Under the laws before that, if a serf obtained enough money or could claim livestock that another sufferer of the plague had abandoned, he sold that, he could buy his way free. Now the law says, nope, you can't, no matter what you've got. You cannot buy your way free. Born a serf, live a serf, die a serf. Legal slavery. The institutions of the day failed the people. The government did nothing to help. In all fairness, there wasn't a lot they probably could have done to help. But they did not have to hurt, and they did. They passed laws to limit options and control people and what they could do, what they could, what they could make. The good churchmen died. The cowards and the greedy were left. Not entirely, of course, but a great deal. They're not serving their people. John Wycliffe, master of Balliol College in Oxford, criticized the church for its failure. He told his congregation the church must return to evangelical poverty. You remember the wandering priests of Anglo-Saxon days. We need to go back to our roots. We need to go back to the pure days of the church. The church's role is spiritual. It is not temporal. The church should not be owning land and treasures and so forth. He condemned the church hierarchy for not supporting the people. He said the church was too wealthy, that they should be selling their treasures to feed the poor, help the sick, and educate the children. He also preached that a man may find salvation without a priest. This is rather revolutionary. He had Bibles printed in English for that purpose. This is 1370. It is not 1517. Wycliffe's poor priests walked the countryside spreading his ideas. 
The Welsh were particularly impressed and converted, even nobles converted. The Archbishop of Canterbury named Wycliffe's followers Lollards, L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S. Lollard means a mumbler of prayers, because they were always going around. Instead of having mass, they were saying the prayers as they walked through the countryside. Edward III died in 1377. By then, the church had excommunicated all Lollards, kind of a generic excommunication. We don't know who you are, but if we catch you, you're already excommunicated. And authorized that all Lollards can be and will be burned at the stake. To have a Bible written in English on your person or in your house was a death sentence. So when Edward III died in 1377, his grandson, 10-year-old Richard, became king, Richard II. Richard's regents and advisors continued the war with France. We've got a country in chaos, and they're continuing the war. To pay for the war, in 1380, they passed a new law. It's a tax, a poll, head tax, of one shilling on every human being in England over 15 years old. A shilling doesn't sound bad, doesn't it? That's not very much. Except in those days, a shepherd or a farmer or a carter often didn't make more than 13 shillings in a year. And so for many, this was one month's income taken away from you. A lot of people refused to pay. And so the government sends armed troops into the shires to collect the tax. John Ball, an excommunicated priest, began calling for revolt. He adds violence to John Wycliffe's ideas. He condemned the clergy, all the clergy, not just the hierarchy. He said if they were actually good priests, they'd be out in the streets with him protesting and supporting the people. And so manors and religious houses are burned and their inhabitants are killed. He added lawyers to the target, and his people went through the streets chanting, death to all lawyers. <laughs> you thought that was a new idea, right? Everywhere they went, they burned the court records, tax rolls, and anything that identified a serf. They're coming back, retaliating for all these new laws that are making serfs slaves more than they were. John Ball is arrested, of course, thrown into jail in the spring of 1381. But his revolt does not end. Kent and Essex rise in rebellion. Two men, Watt Tyler and Jack Straw, gather a mob and they march on London. They free Ball. They loot Lambeth Palace. They open the gates of Fleet Prison. They burned foreign merchants' homes and warehouses. Sounds like the French Revolution, doesn't it? They attacked John of Gaunt's home. They set it on fire and killed two of his men. They reached the Tower of London, the Queen Mother's apartments. She escapes, but they loot it and destroy her apartments. They next find, they go to, to um, a local church and capture and behead the Lord Treasurer and the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
60,000 people gathered at Smithfield demanding that the king send a representative. Listen to what they want and, of course, grant it. And their first demand was to end serfdom so that we shall never again be called serfs and bondsmen. This is a people's revolt. It's called the peasants' revolt. They also asked that their landlords now have to pay them for the three days free work that they have to provide. By law, if you are a serf on land owned by someone else, three days a week you have to you have to work for free at whatever the noble or the church asks you to do. And they're saying, okay, we don't want to be serfs anymore. And all work, including the three days we give freely now, should be paid for. On June the 15th, the 14-year-old King Richard met with the leaders at Smithfield. His advisor said, whatever the mob asks for, Agree. Don't be surprised. Don't be outraged. Just say yes. And after the crowd goes away, we'll do as we darn well please. We will not keep our agreement. So Richard and a small group rides to meet with Watt Tyler. And he makes his demands. We're no longer serfs. We don't have to work for free. And Richard's going, yes, yes, yes. During a second conference, Watt Tyler says, we want all church property confiscated and shared out. The Church of England at that time owned one-third of the land. We're talking about a pretty major amount of property. Richard agreed. Yes, of course, what a good idea. However, Something happens. What happens next depends on which historian and which source you read. Some say that Watt Tyler was so insolent, so rude to the king, that the outraged mayor of London stabbed him. Another story is that one of the nobles accompanying Richard recognized Watt Tyler and accused him of being a known felon, a thief. And when Watt Tyler tried to stab him, one of Richard's guards killed Watt Tyler. Whichever story you believe, Watt Tyler's now dead. There's a small group of people around the king and 60,000 angry peasants. This is not a good idea. But before, and things are going to get angry. People are pulling out knives and bows and arrows. But before it can get too bad, the 14-year-old Richard rides toward them. Now, however badly Richard may be or may treat his people as a king, he does have courage. So this little 14-year-old rides toward the crowd, and he says, Sirs, will you shoot your king? I will be your chief and captain. You shall have from me that which you demand. I'm going to give you what you want. And so the people believe him. They believe that they will have everything they've asked for and a pardon, which Richard also promises them. And so the crowd disperses. Of course, that's not what happened in the end. Many of the rebels, including all of the leaders, are captured. They are hung, drawn, and quartered. 
I think that's a little excessive. You can only die once, but that was, those were the laws in those days. But for the first time, the people had said, enough. There was a limit to how much greed on the government side or the church's side that they will stand. The Magna Carta and Monfort's agreement to the people's rights will not go away. And the poll tax is repealed. And all of it done under the auspices of a young man named Richard. This is the first known portrait of an English king. It hangs in Westminster today. The young king's advisors learned from the revolt. They appeal, repeal the tax. Richard does not. He loves luxury. He is a major sponsor of artists, of writers, of musicians, architects. His closet overflows with the richest clothes, with gold and silver thread and jewels. He's supposed to have invented the handkerchief. Prior to that, a runny nose meant in some places, it still means that, but that's another issue. He was a foodie, loved new tastes, new foods. His, his uh, prime chef wrote the first English cookbook. Now, none of this would have been bad had England been secure and wealthy, but it was not. This is a time of trouble. This is not a time to be extravagant. Richard calls Parliament very seldom, in fact, only six times in the 22 years that he is king. And every time he calls it, it's because he needs money. And so Commons comes suspicious every time he calls Parliament, especially after the Peasants' Revolt ended so badly. And so they come, he asks for money, and Commons begins to criticize the king and his court as being extravagant, out of control, too expensive. We've come a long way. In all fairness to Richard, he did try to stop the war. He does put together some excellent truces with France and with Scotland. His second wife was the seven-year-old Isabella, daughter of the French King Charles VI. Richard was 29 in 1396 when they married. She is not his wife, of course. He treats her like a little sister and, and enjoys having a little sister because he was an only child. He also met with Irish chiefs and ordered many of his nobles to return the lands that they claimed in Northern Ireland. Had this held, perhaps some pretty bloody years and wars with Ireland might not have occurred. Both made sense for the country. How can anybody be against this? But of course, some of the nobles were. They didn't want to give up that land in Northern Ireland. Some of them were making a profit off the Hundred Years' War, because as long as the country was at war and they had to go to war, they were allowed to keep private armies. And private armies allowed you to also intimidate your people and maybe attack your neighbor. And any time you invaded, you got to claim foreign lands and take hostages. So you got some pretty rich ransoms any time you took a noble ransom. So if you did it right, warfare 
turn a very nice profit. Of course, as long as you weren't killed. That, that is a minor problem. Richard was intelligent and charming when he wanted to be. You can see from the picture he was tall, delicate, curly blonde hair, blue eyes. He's a little immature emotionally, but then he was kept isolated most of his life. To the few people that were allowed to be around him, he was loyal, almost too loyal. He got too attached very quickly. And his, and his regents and his advisors didn't want him attached. They wanted him isolated. They wanted to control him. So anytime he got attached to somebody, they would either arrange an accident or accuse the people of a crime. And so they were exiled or killed. Now Richard is... Uh, a man of his time, so I'm pretty sure he never heard of Klingons. But I also know that he would understand the Klingon saying, revenge is a dish best served cold. Richard waits 10 years. In December 1397, the 30-year-old Richard executes two of his advisors and exiles a third. Two others quarrel. The Dukes of, Her of Norfolk and, Herf and Hereford, H-E-R-E-F-O-R-D, quarreled over Richard's intentions. Norfolk came to Hereford and said, we're next. We need to do something about Richard. Hereford disagreed and goes to the king and reports Hereford's words. And so the two men quarrel. They agree to resolve their quarrel in a fight to the death, a tournament. And if both survive the tournament, the loser is executed on the spot. At least you don't have to pay for a trial. On 16 September 1398, thousands of people gathered outside Coventry. They want to watch the tournament, the fight. The two men just begin to fight when Richard stands up and stops it, on the spot, he, he uh, exiles Norfolk for life. Norfolk will die in Venice. For Hereford, there's a little different punishment. He exiles him for six years, and he promises that Hereford will still inherit his father's property. The reason the punishment was different was Hereford, the Duke of Hereford, was Henry Bolingbroke, Richard's cousin. He was the son of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. And so Richard says, after your exile, you can come back and still inherit all of John of Gaunt's property. The two men go into exile. On 2 February 1399, John of Gaunt died, and Richard immediately broke his word. He seizes all of John of Gaunt's property and he extends Henry Bolingbroke's exile to life. He also has Bolingbroke's oldest son, another Henry, brought to court as a hostage. And he does not abuse Henry, but Henry knows exactly what he's there for, so he's not, not having a good time. Now, the, some of the nobles complain. The Percy family complains loudly. And so Richard orders them all arrested. Well, they head north to their property, Northum Northumberland, 
and escape safely. But Richard has gone too far. Now all of the nobles know, they were already worried about the revenge, now they know you can't trust Richard. He could turn on any of them. If he'll turn on John of Gaunt and his cousin, he'll turn on anybody. So people began to arm. Bolingbroke pulls a Godwin. He invades England in July, early July. Now at first all he planned to do was force Richard to pardon his exile and, and give him his father's lands, the, the lands of John of Gaunt that he's supposed to inherit. But as he travels toward London, nobles join him with stories of misrule and abuse. And so he decides, well, maybe that's not good enough. Richard wasn't there. Richard was in Ireland. He was so sure that the nobles would behave themselves that he left the country. He went to Ireland. By the time he comes back in late July, the country is no longer his. His army has almost entirely gone over to Henry Bolingbroke. His court's down to only a few. And so Bolingbroke sent an emissary to Richard and said, you can still be king, but you have to give me my lands back, and you have to give me my dad's lands, John of Gaunt's lands, and all of John of Gaunt's offices, which was tantamount to control of the government. You remember John of Gaunt controlled the government. Richard agreed. He rides out, meets Henry Bolingbroke, and is immediately arrested. Now Henry Bolingbroke goes to Parliament and claims the throne by conquest and by blood right. Things, things have changed a little bit in the last hundred years. Parliament appoints a group a committee, we would say, of, are you ready, sages in law, lawyers, to evaluate the legality of Bolingbroke's plan and his claim to the throne. Find out how we can make this legal, in other words. They reported back, Richard can be deposed for his perjuries, sacrileges, extractions from his people, that is taxes, reduction of his people to slavery, and weakness of rule. This is the very first time since Anglo-Saxon days that a people evaluate a king's ability to rule. And they rule against Richard. When they report the, the findings to Richard, his answer was, my God, what a wonderful land is this, and fickle, which hath exiled, slain, destroyed, or ruined so many kings, rulers, and great men. Henry Bolingbroke is crowned King Henry IV on 30 September 1399. Richard dies in Pontefract Palace on or before 14 February 1400. Some say he was murdered, others that he was starved to death. A lot of people go for starving because the people who viewed the body before it was buried say the face was unmarred. The new king will, will face several serious imposters claiming to be Richard. 
during his reign. And constant rumors that Richard is still alive or was foully murdered to undermine Henry's reign. If you're curious to know more about Richard, you will get very different views of him in two of the books on your reading list. Roy Strong's A People's History and Antonio Frazier's The Lives of the Kings and Queens of England. You can also have fun with it, Shakespeare's version, his, his Richard II. Except, of course, remember, Shakespeare is fiction. It's based on history, but he takes, um, he got some wide room in his literary license. The new king sent Richard's nine-year-old widow back to France, but kept her jewels. When the little nine-year-old comes before the new king and he's telling her that she can go home, she refuses to look at him. You see a little nine-year-old in the middle of court. <laughs> but she goes home safely in 1400, but without her dowry. And so her dad, the outraged French King Charles VI, refused to recognize Henry as king. And so we have a new king. This is from his tomb. King Henry was the same age as his cousin, the former King Richard. But physically, they're very different, as you can tell. Henry was short and stocky with fiery red hair. He was considered handsome in his youth, but around the age of 39, in 1406, he developed a major skin disease. Now, some historians say he had an extreme case of eczema, so bad that his contemporaries said he had leprosy. Other historians say he was suffering from syphilis, which was also often mistaken for leprosy in those days. More recently, historians think he had a series of many strokes on top of eczema, so he had multiple problems going on. Henry's rule was troubled. He was haunted, of course, by the tales of Richard's death. There was also another claimant for the throne, Edmund Mortimer, Earl of March, was the nephew of John of Gaunt's older brother. Under the rules of primogenitor, his is, he should be king, not Henry. But Mortimer's only seven. And so Henry keeps him under protective custody, let's put it that way, in the Tower of London. A number of re revolutions will break out in, in Edmund Mortimer's name. The first one just a few months after Henry takes the throne. Less than six months later, Owen Glendower, Prince of Wales, that is the Welsh Prince of Wales, starts a revolution. He wants Wales back, free of English control. Although Owen is forced into guerrilla warfare, his cause grows. King Henry IV sends his young son the English Prince of Wales, Henry, to fight with Owen. It's a fierce training. And the young Henry is 13 years old. The Percys, whose land borders part of Wales, who had been part of the, su the support that went to Bolingbroke, they helped put Henry IV on the throne, now ally with Owen Glendower against Henry. 
The greatest of them was Harry Percy, called Hotspur, H-O-T-S-P-U-R. It was his nickname because of his reckless courage, always charging into battle. They're an ambitious and overly proud bunch. They had received lands, money, and honors for helping put Henry on the throne. He had even made Hotspur the governor of his, of his heir, Prince Henry. But Hotspur never felt that he got enough recognition for all he had done. Hotspur is one of those people whose ego arrives in a room 30 minutes before the body does. So there probably wasn't enough recognition in all of England to satisfy him. By 1403, Owen and the Percys planned to overthrow Henry IV and divide England between them. King Henry IV is warned that the Percys and Owen Glendower have allied against him. He reacts quickly. He brings his forces and meets with Prince Henry against Hotspur at Shrewsbury on 21 July 1403. Harry Percy, Hotspur, dies. Prince Henry is wounded. An arrow takes him in the forehead very close to his eye. He stays in the field for the entire battle. Hotspur's father, the Earl of Northumberland, is spared, but he continues to foment rebellion against Henry. And the Percys rise again in 1406. This time, Henry executes everybody involved including the Archbishop of York, Richard Scrope. Now you remember the, the uproar that occurred when Becket died. Well, this one's almost as bad. But Henry will not back down. Owen makes a treaty with France and with Scotland. And France offers initially a little support, mostly money, a few arms. By 1405, Glendower has all of southern Wales back. Looks like he's going to take it back. But his English supporters have been defeated. France and Scotland do not come to his aid. And so the rebellion dies gradually. The fighting's over by 1415. Now Henry's troubles keep him from going to war, continuing the Hundred Years' War with France. His home, his troubles also keep him from persecuting the Lollards. Or so he says. Clergymen are suspicious that Henry may in fact sympathize with the Lollards. And there is some evidence that he did. Henry also does something very different. He appoints the first ever commoner to his royal advisory council. He appoints Sir Richard Whittington, cloth trader, moneylender, royal banker, past and future mayor of London. You may know Dick Whittington from stories told about him and a cat that he never owned. Henry's illness leave him dependent on his counsel and from really involvement in government. So 
Sometimes he favored the Archbishop of Canterbury as head of the council. Sometimes he allowed Prince Henry to act as head of the council, depending on whether the two were arguing at the time or not. Henry IV died in March of 1413, two weeks before his 46th birthday. He was a bold and gallant knight. He was a sad, depressed, and beleaguered king. Be careful what you ask for. Remarkably, though, he held on to the throne, which is not easy for a usurper. Despite the challenges from the Percys, nobody challenged his right to the throne. Even commons supported him as king, and that's quite unique. His son, Henry V, is one of England's greatest heroes. Henry is Prince Hal in Shakespeare's play, King Henry IV. He is the strong and resolute king of Henry V. Shakespeare saves, arguably, some of his, some of his very best speeches for Henry V. Henry's exploits were so larger than life and so well documented that even modern historians who love to punch holes in, in heroes have a little trouble debasing Henry's activities. But then they don't have a whole lot of time to attack. Henry is crowned in 1413. Two years later, he defeats the French army. Six years later, he's regent of France. The next year, he's dead. Nine years. Not a long time. We don't see it in this portrait, but Henry was considered handsome. Of course, I, probably most kings were considered handsome, or at least you said they were. Uh, but then, you know, beauty changes. And often you, you read that Henry was considered handsome. That haircut, and that's not a hat he's wearing, that's a normal haircut for a soldier of that day. Kind of bold thing. He's another charming, high-energy Plantagenet. Tireless, athletic, well-educated. He's no saint. He's all too human. He's prejudiced and stubborn as a mule, and absolutely certain that he's usually right. Not always, but usually. Anybody know somebody like that? <laughs> Anybody that way? He could be horribly ruthless on occasion, and was several times. He had a hot temper, that Plantagenet temper, but he kept it on a very tight leash, so tight that his enemies called him cold. He was born in 1387, the oldest of six children. He has three brothers and two sisters. During Henry IV's coronation in 1399, the 12-year-old was knighted and created Prince of Wales. It was not a courtesy title. He was expected to participate in the governing of wild and unruly Wales. He was 12. When Owen Glendower rebelled in 1400, the young prince was put under Harry Percy's control and expected to fight and lead troops. Three years later, 
When the Percys revolted and King Henry IV brings his army to bear on Hotspur at Shrewsbury, the 15-year-old prince leads the right wing against his former governor. When Hotspur fell, King Henry returned to London, leaving the young prince in charge of the war against Owen Glendower. And for the next five years, the two princes of Wales, one Welsh and one English, battle. It's often hit and run, a lot of harrowing of troops. There's only one siege, and Henry stubbornly starves out the garrison. It takes him six months. His father never provides enough money for the troops. Henry is, the young prince is absolutely not going to let his troops go unpaid. We're already talking about a professional army. And so the prince pawns his lands and his jewels to pay, pay his troops. Dick Whittington is one of his primary lenders. For many historians, King Henry IV's reluctance to pay in full and on time is where the hostility begins between the two and which so troubled his father's last years. Prince Hal learns a 21st century lesson. He is the first to put war on a sound financial basis. Not what you think about of medieval warfare, is it? And he's concerned about money and paying for it. There's, ab there's no budget for military action in those days. Starting sometime in 1406, Prince Hal started attending his father's council and advisors' meetings. While Henry IV did not actively pursue the war in France, he does keep an eye on what's going on over there. And the French king is sick, and he has bouts of madness. He probably had porphyria, which is the disease that destroyed King, Henry the, um, king George III of England. Remember the movie, The Madness of King George? That's not particularly accurate, but he was... Suffer. He did suffer in his later years from some pretty horrific bouts of insanity brought on by Porphyria. During one of Charles's attacks, the French king, his brother, the Duke of Orléans, and his cousin, the Duke of Burgundy, quarrel, and a civil war breaks out across France. The war is both an opportunity and a challenge to England. The king and the prince support different sides. And so they begin to quarrel in council. What should we do about this? Who should we support? Rumors began to spread that Prince Henry wants the crown now, that he wants his father to abdicate because he's been ill. And the king's illness worsens. It's very bad in 1409. And Prince Hal took over the council. His father's so sick he can't even come to council. And so Prince Hal's in charge of the council, and he decides to take action. And he sends troops to France to, su to support the Burgundians, not his father's choice, the Orléans. 
His father gets better and he comes back to take over the, the council, learns what his son has done. He's been hearing those rumors that Hal wants the throne, and so he, he kicks him off the council. Puts his favorite, Arundel, Bishop of, of Canterbury, back in control. Things got very hostile between father and son, but Henry IV dies before things get too bad. And so King Henry V was crowned in a strong snowstorm, a blizzard, in April 1413. He's 26. He's the ultimate soldier, but he's also pretty smart politically. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.